Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Feeling Scene podcast, the podcast that, like it says in the title, talks about the movies that make us feel seen. And you know what? Sometimes there's an exception. That movie's detail, and we're going to get into that today with my co-host for this episode. Uh, You might know very popular and beloved television shows that she has written for, like Brooklyn Nine-Nine that she has written for and produced, like One Day at a Time, the recent charming as hell Gordita Chronicles that uh, she was the showrunner on, Bridget Munoz Leibowitz. What else do people need to know about you before we get going? What, What fundamental information should we have out there? Ooh. Um, I can't eat gluten or dairy. How about that? There we go. Cute. So if you want to send me presents, like, mm. gotta know, I can't, gotta, they have to be special cupcakes. <laughs> We're talking about feeling identified, feeling <laughs> yeah. represented. And I want, I, you know, it's important to have the cross section of what representation means within these conversations. <laughs> Definitely. I don't want to limit it. You know, I want our horizons to be broad. Um, I appreciate it. And who is the character that you have brought for us to discuss today? So I'm bringing to the pod Amy Santiago of Brooklyn Nine-Nine fame. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Wonderful character portrayed by Melissa Fumero, who has beca- since become a friend and a collaborator. Oh, that's nice. Yes, an incredible comedic actress who, for, about whom I cannot say enough wonderful things. <laughs> and, you know, when when you guys first approached about participating on the podcast i i think i the reason it took me so long to get back to you Mm -hmm. was because i was really struggling to find a movie or a person in a movie that made me feel seen i was just i I was racking my brain honestly and i was like god what's wrong with me is this how i find (laughs) out i'm a psychopath (laughs) i don't relate to people don't i I just write to feel close to humanity yeah i was like i like a lot of movies and i wish i could be in a lot of movies as that character but in terms of feeling seen and affirmed and validated It occurred to me that I had never really seen anybody with whom I I so like identified growing mm-hmm. up. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And honestly, and coincidentally, Brooklyn Nine-Nine was my first writing job. Good start. Con- congratulations on that Thank start. <laughs> I was very fortunate. And I think the reason it was my first writing job was because I identified with those that character so much. And maybe mm-hmm. someday I'll get to ask Dan and Mike about it. I never yeah. did when I was, you know, on staff. But the sample that I wrote that got me that job was called Lady Cops. And it was about <laughs> me, the cop version of me, mm-hmm. a total tryhard. <laughs> That liter- I have the phrase try hard in my question notes yes, for yes. A, a common thread of conversation here. Yes. I, okay, I so we're on the same page. Yeah. But because, you know, they say write what you know. Mm-hmm. And as I was trying to write my samples to get staffed on stuff, I was working, had been working in t- production. I've been working in, t- and I, I was in a writer's room as an assistant at the time. Mm-hmm. And it was, and I love these guys so, so much. The guys that gave me my first writer's assistant job. Uh, I was on person of interest and it was Jonah Nolan and Greg Plagerman who are like just incredible guys. And it was an amazing experience. You love to but hear that because like, you don't hear it all the time. 
Oh no, they were awesome. Oh, they were really wonderful people. Um, but it was a guy's world. It was like mm-hmm. a guy's show and not to gender things, but like, I think even they would call it like a guy's show. Yeah. And you know, there's a lot of like Jim Caviezel shooting things and yeah. like explosives and you know. Whatever. I love I love DTV action movies and that is like Republican guy shit. And yeah. like, yeah, I can love it. And like, yeah. I'm just like hanging with the guy. No, no but it is totally it, it's, it's bro. It's bro shit for conservatives. Totally. And, and I to be fair. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's super fun. And to be fair, that show ended up having an incredible female couple female characters who mm-hmm. were badass and, you know, to the, to their credit. My point being, I always have been a woman trying to get into a guy's crew totally. like that's just been my whole life okay. part of my jobs on the show was to research stuff for taraji henson's character mm-hmm. and i got in touch with some female cops and fbi agents to interview them about what it was like mm-hmm. and the biggest through line was like it's so tough being a, a woman a chick in this guy's world mm-hmm. and i was like i really identify with that because that's how tv feels especially how comedy feels oh god yeah so i wrote the sample about that and i think they read it and they were like oh this is amy santiago <laughs> yeah, <right>. so <laughs> yeah, i do think that's why I got the i'm job. like okay amy santiago amy santiago i'm piecing this together yeah yes yes can you give us a little a little tidy summary of what is Brooklyn Nine-Nine oh, and who is Amy sure, to Brooklyn Nine-Nine? Sure. So Brooklyn Nine-Nine is a single cam comedy set in a police station in Brooklyn in the 99th Precinct. Um, and it was on uh, Fox uh, initially and then picked up by NBC. And it follows famously this, picked up by yes, NBC. this <laughs> hilarious group of uh, cops, uh, Andy Samberg and... And um, I could name all the cast, but they're all phenomenal. And yeah, yeah, it's it's a really hilarious comedy. And Amy Santiago, played by Melissa Fumero, is the try hard, um, overachieving, uh, brown nosing, goody two shoes, <laughs> teacher's pet cop uh, who desperately wants to uh, get the approval of her captain. And prove to everybody that she is just as good a cop as any of anybody else. So I, I really identified with that character uh, for a bajillion reasons. Here, this is for you. It's a grade for your performance these past two days. A letter grade so as to not be weird about it. Oh my God, you really shouldn't have. An A. Thank you. Just curious. Does your system have pluses in it or is like A the highest? How then was writing the words coming out of Amy's mouth? Like, was it a sense of familiarity that came into writing about the character or was it was it exciting to get to know this person who was unfamiliar to you? Like, were you like, no, I'm putting, I'm in this character, like Amy is me. Like, how was that? Yeah, I think it was honestly a weird sort of meta life imitating art thing because it was also my first job and I had all the the feelings that Amy had in the show about Mm. like I just want them to like me I just want (laughs) to succeed I want to work really hard and please be my rabbi and all that stuff (laughs) it was one of the it was a really surreal experience to be watching her and all the things they make fun of her for was like oh my god that's me and um yeah it was i mean a lot of the lines came naturally and a lot of the the secret neuroses may or may not be things that i have done and it felt it felt great to be able to write somebody who i 
knew with my heart was a real person, mm-hmm. you know, because you know, and and also it felt really good to not just be writing guys' voices too, yeah. which a funny thing I realized really late in life was that all of my early samples had ma- white male protagonists. Yeah. Like everything I would write was like, Joe's just a guy who like is coming home after getting his heart broken. I'm like, I don't know a Joe. <laughs> You're like, who's that? fucking Joe? I don't, <laughs> I don't know, know Joe. Yeah. So it was a real paradigm shift uh, for me to be able to work on that show. Not not just one, but two. Uh, Steffi Beatrice's character, Rosa, mm-hmm. also. I have seven brothers and I was the only girl. I always had to fight for a place at the table. Well, you're not the only girl at the table anymore. We work in a police force full of dudes. We gotta have each other's backs, okay? You saying you have my back? Yeah, I got your back. Don't smile, I'm still mad at you. I thought we were having a moment. Moment's over, shut up. To have two Latinx women on a show, it was kind of a uh, game changer, like to have a Latinx character, a woman on the show who wasn't on there because of her boobs and butts or swallowing baggies of cocaine. It was like a Latina on screen as a professional with like the very specific neuroses of a first generation child of immigrants. Yeah. All that like overachieving neuroses that so many of us have. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, it was it was rad. So, like, you know how they they say, like, oh, you you start, you know, you're really like becoming fluent in a language when you start like dreaming in it. Is was there a point where having to graft yourself onto fucking Joe so many times? Were you like dreaming in Joe at a certain point, oh. or like fucking Jane Anderson? Like, was that an interesting question? Does that ever like creep into the subconscious realm? Where like, oh my god, do I code switch in my dreams? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think so. I mean. I don't have a very active dream life. Otherwise, I feel like I could address this for, like, being queer versus not being queer. uh But, like, I (laughs) I don't really know what I dream. So, but if you do, like, is that that take over your subconscious at a certain point? Uh, Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I, you know, it's become this trope. Uh, and I'm, it's something people make fun of when a woman says all my friends are guys and like you should trust I mean I have female friends as well that I love for and sure. I'm very close to but growing up all my closest friends except for my best friend mm-hmm. were boys mm-hmm. and that was I think a function of STEM or, not, or that not existing at the time you know what I mean like yeah. those were just the classes that I was in and they were in those classes and they were my classmates and so we were friends Yeah. Um, and yeah I guess there weren't a lot of girls on the robotics team but that you know <laughs> Um, we're trying to change it yeah yeah so um i think because of that i i in my waking life Mm -hmm. often um performed masculinity to Mm -hmm. feel closer to my friends and i think i my mother gives me shit for it but i think i still do i don't mean to but it's just kind of or maybe i'm just a top boy i don't know it it, yes yeah in my waking life yes i do that and in my dreams i've definitely definitely experienced that not so much about the whiteness mm-hmm. but more about the maleness mm-hmm. i would say okay. yeah okay yeah that is i now that is i'm very fascinated by that with the marriage of like you said like the try hard which yeah. is like this fundam like in in sort of the, the popular imagination like how it is most typically realized in our fiction you know tracy flick being a name and a metaphor for a type of person mm-hmm. and and that type of person is typically a type of girl in our fiction some people say i'm an overachiever but i think they're just jealous my mom always tells me i'm different you know special 
And if you look at all the things I've accomplished so far, I think you'd have to agree. And like that sort of fundamentally in narrative imagination, female archetype of the try-hard achiever with this like having like this negotiation in the IRL place of perhaps, you know, perhaps tomboyishness, perhaps like a degree of like learned, performed, like chick who can hang kind of thing. When then like getting into, I feel like one of the best things about Amy is that like between Amy and Rosa, you both, you get both multiple women in the same space getting to be different people. And that was such a, treat to be able to see Rosa and Amy being distinctly themselves because they didn't have to fully encapsulate like the Latina in the room in every way that would have stood in contrast perhaps to their architected out personality because it was like well now we got to check these boxes like they got to be autonomous and Amy got to be a girly tryhard yeah yeah, it's a really great point. And I I think the show, I, I have to just give props to them for the, the casting of that show. I mean, they were kind of at the forefront of diverse casting, which I hate to say because that was only like 2012. <laughs> yeah. You know, but like, think about it. Like, they're mm-hmm. really. No, you're right. Shows it's been like about 15 that. minutes, man. <laughs> yeah. And honestly, I don't know that we're doing any better than they did back then. I feel mm-hmm. like they really did a great job with that. And, um, it's true to it's true to what New York was is like. I mm. think also. So, um, and the people that become cops and why. So I I thought. That was great. Um, back to mm-hmm. what you're saying about the the female archetype of the tryhard. It occurred to me recently because I was thinking about this show, this movie actually. Because I was considering maybe it's this movie that I was mm-hmm. going to bring to you, mm. which is uh, Legally Blonde, because she's a tryhard in disguise. Yeah, she is. You know, mm-hmm. I'll show you how valuable Elle Woods can be. And I was like, is it, am I Elle Woods? Am I? But I. <laughs> There were enough things that were different, which was like the excessive wealth and whiteness. And I was like, I just can't cross that. I, I can't cross the ba- blood brain barrier. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. No, that's yeah. completely understandable. Yes. Yeah, so. so what, 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 when you like first experienced Amy, was there something sort of palpable in your mind where you were like, God, there's something so much more substantial for this character for me than I feel like I've experienced before? I don't know if you were a fan before you started writing. You yeah, were like, yeah, Amy's I was. Girl. Like, but yeah. very, I was on on the first season. I think only a few episodes had come out by the time I was on the show. So like okay. kind of was learning her at the same time. Got it. Um, well, yeah, I think I mentioned before the fact that she was a full character, specifically all her neuroses. Mm-hmm. They were there's so many and so <laughs> so many. Like so many and so deeply rooted in a really complete character. Mm-hmm. I mean, Amy's first generation Cuban and with so many brothers and a dad who also, you know, a brother who's another cop and like Mm -hmm. the competition within that family, the expectations of performing Mm -hmm. as a, as a child of immigrants, Mm -hmm. like the, like the secret bad habits that people who are often (laughs) overachievers have had the same one. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about, but um, I believe I do. I believe. Yes. Yeah. And I think, I, I think, that to me was like the first time I really saw a complete, that's not true. I do think on Desperate Housewives, um, hmm. Eva's, Eva Longoria's character was a pretty okay. complete, well-fleshed out character. Mm-hmm. But um, again, it, and no shade to Eva, who again, a, a great friend and a mm-hmm. collaborator. Yeah, who I collaborator. You, she, is, she was an executive producer on yeah. Gordita Chronicles. Yes, yes. That character also, I mean, everybody in Desperate Housewives was on there because they were 
beautiful. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you yeah. Know, yeah. Check, 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 check. Yeah. Yes, it's nothing to haunt her. It's just the, it's the conceit of the show. Yeah. And um, <laughs> yeah. So, um, but yeah, I, I, it's the first time I felt like I somebody who was like me was represented as a full person, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. I think one of my th- one of the things that. I've been doing a lot of press for Gordita Chronicles. And I think one of the questions I get a lot is why do you think it's important to portray Latinos on television, which (laughs) face value? I know, I know, I know. Uh, Yeah. Your laughter belies the exact sentiment I feel behind it. And it's just such a, it's one of those questions where it's like, why don't you just tell me what you want me to say, first of all, because obviously you're looking for a specific answer. Mm -hmm. And B, could you be less specific? So it's like they're they're asking such a weird question and I, an open-ended question wanting a specific answer, which I find odd. It's wanting you to do the work of of finding the better question within the question. Yes. So, I mean, the thing that I feel and have been saying when I get asked that question is because I think, you know, the way that Latino people have been portrayed in media thus far, Mm -hmm. for the most part, is people running from danger in a crisis, Mm -hmm. violence, committing violence, buying or selling drugs, Mm -hmm. tits and ass. Like, that's the categories that we're allowed to participate in. Mm -hmm. And I think when you get used to seeing that in television people if you do not know people in the latinx community whether you are trying to or not you can be the most evolved progressive person in the world but if that's the image that has been in your brain rattling Mm -hmm. around in there for the longest time that's you can't help but reference that right so i think for me, why I think some a character like Amy Santiago, or I'm going to pat myself on the back, the Castelli family, Gordita Chronicles, yes. is so important and game-changing is that when you show a character with a sense of humor specifically, and you use the Latinos in comedy specifically, for me, I mean, you know about the Turing test. That's like mm-hmm. the measure of intelligence and humanness and I'm a whatever. big fan of robot cinema. Okay, so it's like, a, it's like a Turing test, but in a way it's like when you see a character that has a sense of humor, somehow a barrier is broken and they pass mm-hmm. your Turing test. Mm-hmm. You're like, oh, that is a human being. That's a good That's point. That's a complete human being to whom I can relate, right? Mm-hmm. And I think when we, when we don't see comedies specifically with people of color, I think we are not being honest or full in depicting who these people are. And I think that's that's one of the things that really I appreciated as a Latinx person and as a comedy writer just to see, oh my God, yeah, they are. They're not just an archetype. They're a fully thought out person with problems and goals mm-hmm. and points of view, you know? Well, and with Gordita Chronicles specifically, with we're beginning with an immigrant family has moved from the Dominican Republic to Miami in 1985. And we are following Cuckoo, the little, uh, the middle school daughter of this family who is so goddamn charming. And she's so good. (laughs) I was like, man, is she going to hit that precocious kid limit for me? I'm like, no, she's really not. I'm just, I'm ready to keep hanging out with her. Because she has an edge to her. That's that's the other thing. That is what makes it work. And 
what is the mandate when you're in a room where part of the marching orders are like, okay, we're going to tell the story of this immigrant family, which means we're going to very explicitly get at issues of how this family is having to confront the ways in which Latino families, Latinx families are being misconstrued and judged. We obviously open the show with like a real estate woman thinking that the father is a drug lord because he's a handsome Dominican man who's getting upset in Spanish on the phone and Latin people with money must be drug lords in Miami in 1985. And so I would love to hear from you from a comedy writer's standpoint. What is that? shaping process like where you're taking something that's like kind of born from shitty stuff like it's it's born from things that kind of hurt and kind of suck and our mandate is to put it into this like young adult show that has like that wonderful sort of pixar appeal of like anybody could watch this and enjoy this that's comedy is really hard and i'm wanting you to explain (laughs) how to do hard comedy like this to me well this particular show um was very special because it was based on the real-life family of Claudia Forestieri, the creator of the show, mm-hmm. who immigrated from Puerto Rico, actually. We, in real life, it's Puerto Rico, but to, for the purposes of the show, to make it easier. She's Dominican, but her family moved from the DR to Puerto Rico for a year, and she oh, just okay. happened to be born there during the time <laughs> that they were there, and Got then it. they moved to, yeah. Um, so, you know... Um, it was rooted in real characters. We built, obviously we, we fictionalized them and made them different for our purposes. Mm -hmm. Um, But it came from a true and real place of her Mm -hmm. experience being here, the culture shock um, and not just being an immigrant, but being uh, a chubby immigrant. Mm -hmm. And I think that makes it, it puts a totally different spin on the experience as well. Yeah. And so when we were staffing for the show, we wanted to make sure we had representation within the room. So we wanted almost everybody in the room, 80% of our writers were immigrants or children of immigrants. Mm. So they had their own experience with it, or they knew intimately their family's experience. Um, We had, I think like we had a, a nice gordito gordita population as well <laughs> and we had um queer representation in the room as well mm-hmm. and um because that's you would have gone on if the show had gone on mm-hmm. and maybe it will still but you're still in the process of figuring that out right right There's, yeah it we, seems we like you're, on you're that in that well. you're in that limbo right so all this is to say all these stories come from a real place every mm-hmm. episode that you see every storyline is happened to one of us or is based on something in our family so mm-hmm. the way we were coming up with these stories we didn't actually sit down and we're like what are the issues of immigration we want to talk about? We For didn't sure. do that. Mm-hmm. We were just like, we want to tell coming of age story mm-hmm. for this kid in the 80s. And we accessed all of our own stories uh, to do that. So mm-hmm. we did our, for example, the first day of the room, we all brought photos of ourselves as kids. And I think the assignment was bring three photos in of yourself and or your family and then be prepared to talk about them like what was happening on a day and your family in that world and we were able to pull out these just naturally hilarious stories mm-hmm. from that experience and they just you know because of who they happened to they were related to immigration mm-hmm. and we were always we say we started from the from the place of what's a funny thing that happened to you or was a formative moment that happened to you which mm-hmm innately have comedy in them. (laughs) Um, And as we talked about them, we realized that the 
we we were never out from under the shadow of immigration. The mm-hmm. lens that lens was always on anything we ever experienced and right. did because of who we are and how the world saw us and how we interacted with the world. So that oddly in in a weird way was sort of just built into anything we talked about and and we we actually came in comedy first. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, okay. uh, and and we discovered that all of our immigration issues just were like right there with them. They were intertwined. We are going to take a quick break, but we will be back with more of my conversation with Bridget. And then I will have one quick thing before I go about a movie that simply everyone's talking about. The 1980s fantasy film Crawl. Stick around. there, I'm Ellen Weatherford. And I'm Christian Weatherford. And we've got big feelings about animals that we just gotta share. On Just the Zoo of Us, your new favorite animal review podcast, we're here to critically evaluate how each animal excels and how it doesn't, rating them out of 10 on their effectiveness, ingenuity, and aesthetics. Guest experts give you their takes informed by actual, real-life experiences studying and working with very cool animals like sharks, cheetahs, and sea turtles. It's a field trip to the zoo for your ears. So if you or your kids have ever wondered if a pigeon can count, why sloths move so slow, or how a spider sees the world, find out with us every Wednesday on Just the Zoo of Us in its natural habitat on MaximumFun.org. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm a psychic. My name is Psychic Carrie. I'm yes. Ross. Oh, what a pleasure to meet you. Of course, I knew your name was Ross, as I am a psychic. But please, take a yeah. seat. Well, I was hoping, we, hoping could talk about we could talk about my, my podcast. podcast. Yes, I know. It's called Oh No, Ross, Ross and Carrie. Yes. We investigate from uh-huh. science, spirituality, yeah. and claims of the paranormal. paranormal. You, you took the words right out of my mouth. Yes. This whole podcast, it sounds like it's been a real challenge for you lately. Actually, it's a lot of fun. Yes, exactly. Because it's so fun. I don't know how you do it. This will be $75. Okay, that seems fair. Oh no, Ross and Carrie. At MaximumFun.org. You knew it was a .org. I have a gift. Welcome back to Feeling Seen. My co-host today is TV writer and producer Bridget Munoz-Libowitz who has been telling us about how she feels seen by the tryhard Amy Santiago of Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Bridget did not create Amy, but she did write for the show at the very beginning of her career as a TV comedy writer. So let's get back into it. Now, so I, I, I want to think about, um, I think like sort of like a timeline here where like you're, you know, Brooklyn Nine-Nine being your first, it sounds like staff writing job. Mm-hmm. And that being, it sounds like, you know, being accustomed to like writing the content, writing the POV of Joe, some guy Joe, and then yeah. getting into the show and being able to write for like some guy Joe, but also for Rosa and also for Amy, as well yes. as Jake, like being, you know, the, the panoply of, of the Brooklyn Nine-Nine human experience. Yes. And then I was uh, reading in an interview where you were talking about working on One Day at a Time. You were saying something along the lines of like, that was where you were like, I felt like I was finally in the like a safe space to realize myself completely as like a female Latinx comedy writer. And yeah. then going from, I kind of wanted to hear from you about sort of 
how have these jobs sort of moved the bar for you each time in terms of like, what did Amy prepare you for with One Day at a Time? What did One Day at a Time prepare you to do with Gordita Chronicles? That's a really, really great question. Um, because I, now that you mentioned, I do really see a, a, great, a gradual evolution mm. um, with every job. Brooklyn Nine-Nine was my first experience seeing myself on TV, Mm -hmm. my first experience being actualized as a writer, a thing that nobody ever believed. And I almost didn't believe that I could do, you know, that was the other other thing. Which makes you the truest writer of all, Bridget. (laughs) Yes. Well, I mean, I say that mostly not because, not for lack of trying. In fact, one of the, re- and this is very Amy Santiago of me, but one of the reasons I was so attracted, if I'm looking at it with my therapy glasses on, mm-hmm. one of the reasons I think I'm so, I was so attracted to working in show business because somebody once told me that it was extremely hard to break in. Somebody once said it was like harder to become a TV writer than to become a senator. And I was like, that's for me. Yeah. You know, like the challenge. <laughs> I will and try I was like, I want, hard. I will prove you wrong. And because there were no role models and I was drawn to to try to prove people wrong. The expectations people had of me growing up, mm-hmm. not my family. My family expected a lot from me mm-hmm. um, and su- was very supportive in that way. But I, the people around me, like I grew up in a very white, mm-hmm. no offense to the whites. I, a lot, I love Eladia. You're I, listen, great. There's, there's some good ones, but we deserve a lot of offense. So I grew up in this environment where people just, saw me as my two Z's and a tilde. Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> you know, they didn't really see me as a full person. That's my whole point is like, I grew up in this space, this very, mm-hmm. very white space. People didn't see me as a complete person. And mm-hmm. that I think was really, really hard for me. And so I was like, oh, you don't see everything I'm capable of fucking watch me. Yeah. Just yeah. watch me. Yeah. And that really fueled. And I know in a way that that fuels Amy Santiago's character because <laughs> she grew up as a girl in a male space and her mm-hmm. house family full of boys. And, you know, and she was like, oh, you don't think I can be a cop? Fucking watch me. <laughs> I can be a fucking captain. Watch me, you know? And I, I think I, I just so relate to this. So that was, Brooklyn was the first time I crossed the first barrier. Like I did it. I got to the first like rung. And honestly, at that point in my life, I was like, I did it. I achieved my right. dream. All right. Like, I'm here. I did it. Like, I'm, oh my God. And like, I'm <laughs> early. I'm, 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 I'm 29. Great. Yeah. <laughs> Incredible. So, um, But then what ended up happening was I went on to the next job. And the next job was really fascinating because the next job was um, People of Earth. Mm. Norm Hiscock uh, left Brooklyn and to to run People of Earth and took me with him. Mm -hmm. And um, that was the first time I'd been in a writer's room that was as diverse as it was. Mm. Brooklyn at the time had some diversity in the writer's room, but it was still mostly the Harvard vibe. You know what I mean? Harvard Lampoon gang. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. Again, no offense to these gentlemen who have who gave me, have, honestly gave me my start. And, yeah. and I, again, respect and appreciation, but that was the demographic yeah, yeah. at the time. And People of Earth, um, starring Wyatt Cenac, produced by Conan uh, and Greg Daniels, was a different room. And it was 50% people of color and 50% female. Mm-hmm. And um, a huge inter- like an intersectionality of those two as well. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, this this room feels different. Mm-hmm. I can, I can say, I can make jokes that you guys get, mm-hmm. or I can, yeah. 
there's we can have a shorthand exactly or i can i felt more comfortable i mm. I, I hate to say that you know but i really did like a part of me was like in the same way that like when i went to college after mm-hmm. being in a very white space growing up for primary education going to college in a space that was more diverse i i felt like oh mm-hmm. it was like felt safer i guess mm-hmm. is the word i'm looking for yeah so that was the next job and i think that allowed me to grow a little bit and what that job actually let me do because i had that confidence and that security i i i felt like i could start stepping into a bit more of a leadership role oh, okay, I, yeah. I felt and and i and norm god bless him really let me in really he's one of the nice white guys that really <laughs> Uh, in back Can't going referencing back him. to Amy, yeah, <laughs> I've, I've actually been really blessed by a lot of nice white guys. Um, <laughs> these, you know, how Amy Santiago was always looking for her. Well, she wanted Holt to be her rabbi. Yes, yes. I know you may not see yourself as my mentor, but of course I do. I've been mentoring you all this time. This is day 1,282 of a nine-year mentorship I had mapped out for you. Under ordinary circumstances, I wouldn't reveal this to you until day 3,300. It was real. There was a binder. I was always looking for that, too. Um, I And Norm was my first rabbi in that way. Mm, okay. And he... Um, he gave space for me to help out and help break, help lead writers rooms. when we were split up into two rooms, you mm-hmm. know, help break story in that way and leaned on me. And in fact, gave me the opportunity to go to Toronto to produce the show with him, which okay. was a huge, like a hugely formative experience mm-hmm. for me. But um, that having that diversity in that writer's room gave me the security to speak up more and speak mm-hmm. out more. Um, and not feel like I just had to be the staff writer who, you know, being a staff writer is a, a big mind fuck in a lot of ways because, <laughs> you know, you're, you're like, I was in this space with people who I'd idolized my whole life yeah. and, and I'm supposed to talk. But then if I said the wrong thing, there was like, oh, God, I, you know, so. <laughs> but yeah. Especially in a comedy room. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that, that second job was um, let me sort of come into my voice as a writer more. Mm-hmm. And the job after that was a show called Abby's, mm. uh, which a very short-lived multicam on NBC, mm-hmm. which was um, uh, had uh, Natalie Morales was the lead, plays a queer bartender, okay. a Latinx queer bartender, uh, and it's like a re- Cheers reboot, basically that, mm, okay. that NBC tried to do, and that that was really exciting, also because now this. Latinx person was the lead and mm-hmm. we again <laughs> never happened to us yeah and that was exciting and that was like another like layer of this you know blooming onion opening up for, yeah you know, yeah it was exciting and I think that job um I was back in a, a pretty white room again mm-hmm. but it felt different this time I didn't feel like that dominated me so mm-hmm. there had been some growth and evolution uh in that way mm-hmm. it's just it feels like um I remember once talking to Melanie, I got the interview Melanie Scrifano about uh, Winona Earp, a show I treasure, and she talked about how uh, when she got pregnant in, I think, during the second season, or it was, like, going to go into the second season, uh, she was terrified. Because to her, like, what she knew as an actress was, don't get pregnant, you're going to ruin yeah. your career, nothing can be the same after this. Yeah. And 
So when she finally started to like show, it was like, we have to have a conversation about this. And she had like a tearful sobbing conversation with Emily Andrus, the showrunner and like the executives. She like was so bereft, like having to tell them this. They're like, why didn't you tell us sooner? Like, we'll make this work. We'll write this into the show. And like, and they did. And Winona was pregnant. It was a whole thing. And she was so surprised and overwhelmed that her just being alive and making choices and being a person didn't take her out of the running for success and (laughs) for doing good work. And Mm -hmm. she was talked about how that was such an important moment in her life and career because it was like it raised her quote. It's like when you raise your salary and then you go on to the next job and you command a higher salary, your quote gets higher. And it was like raising a quote on like her own integrity to where like Mm. she was like, and then after that, like I wasn't ready to accept less than that treatment from somebody else in another environment. And it seems like as you've gone along, you have been able to amass collaborators, like you said, Melissa from Brooklyn Nine-Nine and Eva Longoria is an executive on Gordita Chronicles. And I'm working with Gloria Calderon-Calette. Oh, like, yeah. you, how is your writer imagination affected by the safety of a creative circle that you know will accept uh, things that you actually want to fucking do? Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's... I, I never honestly I'm gonna get teary thinking about it because I never <laughs> not I never honestly I never thought it would I would ever be able to be myself yeah. completely yeah you know because I think I, a lot of maybe this is just me and I don't I mean again maybe this is how I discover I'm a psychopath but I, I so much <laughs> so Patrick Bateman like okay so, yeah so much of my my professional life I think has been like performing certain identities you yeah. know like more masculine performing like the improv person you know performing as like whatever and yeah. and to be uh, around those specifically those Latinx women mm-hmm. um which I never expected to find I never expected to find them here mm-hmm. you know and it, it it the shorthand like we talked about before mm-hmm. um a good example is on on Gordita Chronicles when Eva was directing the pilot. We had this experience where, you know, she'd call us and be like, "I was thinking about the scene, and I have this note." And she'd give us this note and be like, "We just made that exact change, sending it back to you." Like <laughs> we just were already on the same wavelength, yeah. and we. She, I gotta just take a second for her and Gloria to speaking. Of, they're really nice white guys. There's incredible brown ladies out there from, from supporting me and each other, and they've just been unbelievable. And so basically, Eva would affirm our ideas, and we were always on the same wavelength. Same thing with Gloria. I think they, Gloria really blazed the path for me in as much as like telling going deep in these characters even deeper than amy santiago i think mm-hmm. was what it was allowed to on the type of show that brooklyn 99 was mm-hmm. you know gloria is like the queen of creating full latinx characters she's this, <laughs> just really she is and i think seeing that she could do that and people liked it mm-hmm. made me feel like i could start writing latinx characters i had never written anything with latinx characters until i was like well well into my career maybe three years ago wow. all my protagonists I know had been white and it wasn't and I wasn't until I started seeing shows like one day that makes, uh-huh. that makes total sense like yeah. especially like you're told like this is harder than being a senator it's like yeah. well then I'm going to do I'm I'm not gonna like change who I am to but like this is what success looks like this is what tv looks like this is right. what narrative looks like this is what people we care about on tv looks like and it doesn't look mm-hmm. like me yeah. so I'll, I'll I'll write the things that are real that exist to get made. Right. And now I see, okay, I think I realize not only can I write them, people 
want them. Mm-hmm. Like people do want to know my real story. People do want to see that fully fleshed out Latinx character. Mm-hmm. And that's been very very cool and transformative and validating. I mean, it's a bummer about what happens with Gordita Chronicles. We still have some doors to knock on in terms of finding a new home. But um, I feel like that was an unfortunate anomaly. I do not think because, and again, not to pat myself on the back, based on, not based on the caliber of the show, which we were very honored to get the feedback that we did and we have seen the numbers mm-hmm. and the numbers were good. So yeah. okay. um, it, that was odd, it, a, a little moment, uh, generally speaking. Yes, <laughs> generally it has speaking. been transformative. I do feel like she was one of our our, our prototypes for opening mm-hmm. the doors for other fully fleshed out Latinx characters to exist in mainstream television. Are you coming to a place where you feel like the compartments of your identity are finally being allowed to coalesce. <laughs> so it's funny a, that you ask that. Yes. <laughs> as opposed to like, I'm a Jewish comedy writer. I'm a Latinx comedy writer. Like yes, so I'm just I, everything at the goddamn same time. I totally. And it took me a really long time to be okay with both of those identities. But yes, it took, I went to a therapist specifically for <laughs> identity issues because. I, yes. Yes, I was struggling with it because, and you've, you, I'm sure you've heard this from other Latinx writers or people, but I never felt like I was Latina enough mm. because, you know, yes, I grew up speaking the language. Yes, my family came here, you know, however many years ago, but also at the same time, like I wasn't as entrenched in that culture because it, mm-hmm. only 50% of my life was that, you know, yeah. Yeah. there's another 50% of me that's Jewish that I also treasure that part piece of my identity. And the two sides never really meshed well. So I was often like, again, code switching between the two. Yeah. And it, um, yeah. A really funny thing happened recently, um, which is that my, my grandmother, unfortunately, got very ill and passed away. But our, our, thank you. She was an incredible person is one of the reasons I do comedy. Mm-hmm. And she um, had a caregiver who was from El Salvador. Okay. And they're very, very close. Uh, and what would happen, though, was that the caregiver and I would speak Spanish to each other because it felt more natural. Yeah. And then she, my grandmother started picking up Spanish and, <laughs> and she kind of got into her, she learned some like uh, Spanish songs. She learned mm-hmm. some phrases. She even kind of would make jokes in Spanish. I mean, at 89 <laughs> years old, finally, She's the two pieces the of my test. life. Yes, exactly. <laughs> the two pieces of my life came together and it was actually really beautiful. But wow. yeah, I really struggled with that, with the being half and half for a really long time until I finally realized like, I don't have to pick what which side I identify as. I can identify as both. Mm-hmm. And I don't really care if you think I'm not part of your community. I feel that as though I am. And there are people that agree and they're my community. And Mm -hmm. I don't care if you think I'm not Jewish enough. I identify as being Jewish. It's a huge part of my life as well. So it's funny. um, There's a a development thing I'm working on right now. I hope I can talk about it. It's fine. With Lindsay Golder, uh, who was uh, the number two on Chad. Mm. Another great show. Another great show. Gone too soon. I know. And it's we're writing a show called Birthright, which is about a Latinx woman who converts to Judaism for her fiance. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a show about identity and where you belong and mm-hmm. what makes you Jewish, what makes you Latinx, what, what and it's about our the, the title is a play 
the birthright trip, for those of you that don't know, yes. is a free trip to Israel um, for Jewish people who, to discover their Jewish roots. And but it's also our God given right to self identify, self actualize, and be mm -hmm. who we think we are. Mm -hmm. And uh, it sounds very serious, but it's a comedy. <laughs> and but yes, this, that's the first time that I brought the two sides of my identity together in one one show. So excited about that. And that's that's 10, 11 years into my writing career. So what is it like to try and think of the the sort of next steps of your career when it, it kind of seems like the place that you have fought and worked so hard to get to? It, it seems like it couldn't have actually maybe even been within the scope of your imagination when you started out yeah. to be like, oh, I can coalesce all these things about myself and write about them into my experience as a comedy working professional comedy television writer. Where I'm a showrunner. I'm an, o I'm an EP. I'm a co-EP. Um, does that like kind of speaking of mind fucks, is that like, holy shit, like I kind of have to rethink the 10 year plan because turns out yeah. I've got a lot more options than I ever thought I did. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. And I think I've, I've seen it in other writers that go through this experience because something about writing, I think a wonderful thing about writing is that it forces you to continue to get to know yourself mm -hmm. because you use your own essence for material. And uh -huh. so once you get to a place where you think is the bottom, like I've dug, I dug the well, I'm dry. I don't have anything uh -huh. left. You're like, no, there's stuff under there. You gotta <laughs> yeah. just keep digging, yeah. and you gotta do the do the work, as they say. And that, <laughs> I mean, like therapy or like travel or get your heart broken or whatever. I think it's like from the the lived experience. Yeah. So I think when you're when you are working in in a in a story in a world, you are you are really self-reflecting and sharing pieces of you that you maybe didn't even know were there. Mm -hmm. So I I don't know. I, I What's my 10-year plan? I guess I'll discover it as yeah. I keep digging. You know what <laughs> I mean? I think I do know that there is more stuff in me that I have never been brave enough to share mm. with people before. Okay. That's my hope. My 10-year plan is to be brave enough to share the deeper stuff. Yeah. Okay, well I guess I I I will go on with a with a cheeky with a cheeky final note which is do you have an equivalent of four drink Amy, five drink Amy, six drink Amy? <laughs> I haven't even thought about that's a really great question. <laughs> definitely definitely three drink Bridget is live tweeting Emily in Paris kind of <laughs> that's that's me. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> yep. Four drink Bridget is uh, internet shopping for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I love the idea of like three drinks just like on Twitter and then four being like, well, Emily in Paris, huh? And oh, it's still out of the background. And then I'm just like, shoes. Yeah. Just, I'm like, pretty benign. Apps I'm pretty... over into something yeah. else. <laughs> yes, totally. And then five is asleep for right. sure. Well, th Bridget, thank you so much for this whole conversation, for indulging my fa my final personality quiz with you. I loved it. And it was such a pleasure talking to you. You asked great questions. You are a great interviewer. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. I don't want to waste your time. You took it to share with me. So we should both be enjoying ourselves. It was a delight. Thank you. Thank you very much. Once again, thank you so much to Bridget Munoz-Liebowitz for sharing her incredible journey with us. You can catch up on all the shows we've mentioned on streaming and keep an eye out for whatever she creates next. I'm keeping a little torch lit for the Gordita Chronicles, you guys. It's a really nice little show. Um, 
And now that one quick thing, that one quick thing before I go, because it's been a heat wave in Los Angeles. Uh, it has been a two weeks long scorcher. Um, so that means like, unless it involves water, outside activities are a pretty bad idea. Uh, it's, it's a real buckle down, climate control if you've got it, stay inside, stay protected. And so that led me to revisiting a real family favorite of mine from growing up. A movie that is uh, infamous to a degree. It gets hated on a lot, and that's bullshit. And that movie is Crawl from 1983. Crawl, directed by a man named Peter Yates. And I can't say that I'm familiar with his work. He's directed a lot of things. I'm looking at like an extensive uh, filmography of his work. But this movie, it's got it's got a baby Liam Neeson in it. Like, it's one of those little treasures where you go back and you're like, holy shit, this real famous guy made this silly fantasy movie in the 1980s? I don't know why this movie gets dragged the way that it does. It's a perfect slice of sword and sorcery, 1980s, all-in-camera, totally practical effects fantasy. Um, it is the story of... Princess Lissa and Prince Colwyn. They are coming together in marriage to unite the two kings, the two heads of their houses, to be one unified force because they have to, humanity has to band together to defeat this dark emperor who is a fucking alien. Like, I feel like a thing that doesn't come up explicitly enough in conversation around Kroll, you know, all the conversations of, around Kroll that are happening. We start this movie with like an extended sequence of a spaceship that is a stone castle careening through the cosmos before landing on Kroll, the eponymous, the titular planet. Um, and the emperor sends out, the bad guy sends out his slayers, his slayer army across the landscape to dominate a planet. And it seems like this is a habit that this bad guy has across the universe is just uh, going and enslaving planets and killing people and taking them over. So we have to follow Prince Colwyn after Lyssa is kidnapped and he has to go to this dark tower to retrieve her because the the bad guy, the dark emperor, wants to marry Lyssa so they can lord over the universe together. She, of course, is not having it. And it's just a, like, it, it, it is just a wonderful, honestly, tale of, it's like a fellowship story. This is a, this is a fellowship of the glaive, okay? You've heard of the much more famous fellowship of the ring? This is the Fellowship of the Glaive. As Colwyn amasses around him a motley crew of like an old wise man, a band of thieves, a silly, extremely English magician, uh, Ergo the Magnificent, and a Cyclops. And all together, they have to go through various fantastical settings like encountering the woman of the web that is protected by a gigantic spider and traversing a murky swamp filled with slayers and quicksand. It's it's kind of everything you would want out of a nice 
fellowship quest movie that looks really goddamn cool. And has this led me to getting on Etsy and searching the word glaive to see? And of course, Etsy came through. Do I have $500 to spend on like a two-scale metal bejeweled replica of a glaive? I don't. But like if I had stupid money, that would be a dumb celebrity purchase of mine. Like the weird like tour of my home would include me showing off this glaive replica that I bought uh, because that's what stupid money is for. It's for buying stupid presents for yourself. If you don't believe what you've heard about Crawl, don't believe what you've heard. Don't buy into the bad hype, the anti-hype. It is on HBO Max. This is a movie you can go watch right now and and help me correct the record on the poor reputation of Kroll, a perfectly lovely and well-meaning and charming, uh, like I said, sword and sorcery movie from the 1980s when we were doing it like they would never do it again. When you, you, you didn't have a chance to digitally replicate anything. If you were going to have soldiers in like plastic medieval armor it's like what era is this you got to build that shit from the ground up like we're not paintbrushing over anything so yeah that's my that was my the standout of my heat wave viewing was going back in and rekindling my love of Kroll, like any person with common sense would and that's our show you can follow us on twitter uh at feeling scene pod you can send us an email with your feelings about Kroll at feelingzine at maximumfun.org. If you want to follow me, I am Jorcrew on Twitter. That's J-O-R-C-R-U if you would like to buy me a glaive. I'm inclined to accept. Uh, I missed out on the fucking Mandy Axe replica, so I should probably have a glaive to make up for it. Uh, our theme music is by Andrew Epen. The show is produced by Marissa Flaxbart. Our senior producers are Kevin Ferguson and Laura Swisher. And this is a production of Maximum Fun. MaximumFun.org Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.